Uh, Father in heaven, we do pray, I pray, that you would help us now as we come to this word, that we would understand it rightly, that it would impact us as it should, as you intend, that we would never take for granted the word of God. We'd never take for granted what you have done uh, in the life of believers throughout the centuries, and that this particular incident would, would just stand out for us today and amaze us as it did then, them, and that we would gain from it uh, that grace that we need, as they need it, but we need uh, to live in such a way that pleases you, to persevere to the end, to bear witness of the fact that Christ is alive. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Acts in chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, please. I want to read this chapter. I won't finish it this week. We'll pick it up the end of it next week some, but, um, but I want you to see it all. <clears throat> Acts in chapter 3, please. In verse 1. Hear the word of God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gates of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gates of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's, astounded. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken 
from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now you remember again that Jesus begins all of this by telling his disciples to go into Jerusalem to wait there uh, and they will receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be poured out upon them. They'll be baptized in the Spirit. And when they do, they will be witnesses of Jesus. They'll be empowered and they'll be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, that is right where they were, Judea close by, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now that wasn't a wish of Jesus. That wasn't simply a desire of Jesus. That was the truth. That they would be his witnesses. They should have left that moment realizing that a decree had been made. Certainly it was a command to go to Jerusalem and all of that. But a decree had been made by Jesus. This is going to happen. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. No question about that. So as we're reading through the book of Acts, when we read that, the question that should come to mind is, how is that going to happen? How will they be his witnesses in Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? How is that going to happen? I mean, that should be the question. That's really, in essence, the theme of what Luke is unfolding here. That, that, that this group of people will be witnesses uh, throughout the whole world. And, and we see the reality of that on the day of Pentecost. Because there in Jerusalem are men from from the ends of the earth, Luke tells us, from all over the place to come for this Jewish festival. And on that particular moment in time, we see sort of, sort of encapsulized in that moment the fulfillment of this. Oh, it's going to, going to play out. But, but we, see how, we see it come to pass in an amazing way because the disciples of Jesus are enabled by the Holy Spirit to speak in languages that they've never learned so that they can declare the greatness of God to these people from everywhere. And it's as if... In that moment in time, he's saying, look, this is, this is, I, I said this was going to happen, and now you see it. And, and, and the rest of the book of Acts and the rest of the history of the church is going to be playing this out. How it is that, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the disciples of Jesus, people who know him, are going to be his witnesses. Witnesses that Christ came, that he lived and died that he rose from the dead, that he ascended, that he rules and reigns, that in him is the very rule, the very kingdom of God. And, and we're to be witnesses of that. And witnesses that in him there is repentance from sins and forgiveness of sins. And there's salvation for all who place their faith in Christ alone. They were to be witnesses of that. And they gave evidence of that on that day of Pentecost. And then the question would be, after we got finished with that whole incident, is, is this the way it's always going to happen? I mean, do we wake up every day and we hear this big, loud noise, and it's the very presence of God, and we see tongues of fire on our faces, on our heads, and we're able to speak in other tongues, and we're able to communicate the gospel to, to everybody everywhere. Is, is that how it's going to happen? It doesn't know. It's not how it's going to happen. That was an event that took place on the day of Pentecost. Now, some really cool things happen as we go from place to place, as we go to Samaria and we go to the ends of the earth. We'll see happenings in the book of Acts that are pretty cool, but, but not quite like at the day of Pentecost. In fact, after the day of Pentecost, when 3,000 souls 
come to faith, we find that the primary place of witness is in a community of believers. A community of people that's formed. And, and there's a sense that this is a community of Jesus. A community of the Spirit. And, and they've been, been brought together. And the devotion, since it's a community of Jesus, a community of the Spirit, their devotion is to the teaching of the apostles who teach about Jesus. Because he said that's what they would do. And that's what he said they, he, the Spirit would gift them to do and enable them to do. And it's a community that's a fellowship in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come and joined these people with God and joined them to each other. And what will be evident in this community is love. The love that Christ had shown to them. And therefore the love that they show to one another. And that will be evidence that Jesus is alive. That his spirit is among these people. That he is in fact ruling and reigning because the very love of Jesus will be manifested in that community. And they'll see the very presence of Jesus in a way in, in, in the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. There's a sense of a reminder. There's a sense that Jesus himself, though not able to be seen by us, is here present with us. And they would devote themselves to pray and to pray in the name of Jesus because Jesus said, ask whatever you will and I'll do it. Well, how could he do it if he wasn't alive? And so just the very evidence of praying in the name of Jesus, asking Jesus, would mean that they would believe, would be, bear witness that Jesus is still alive. And so we, we see that in the midst of this community. And then as Luke tells us this in chapter 2 and verse 43, he gives us this sentence after he tells us about the formation of this community and how they live. And he says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Wow, okay? I mean, that's a, that's a sentence, but, but that's huge. But Luke puts it second. First he tells about the formation of this community. And we should think, wow, you mean a group of human beings come together and they actually are unified under one teaching and, and they actually love each other and care for each other and, and, and break bread together and, and share the very presence of Jesus together and, and pray the same prayers together? Wow! That should amaze us all. Given the history of the world. Given what we're like. Given our independence and our pride and all of that. Wow! And then you get the sense, and by the way, cool stuff's really happening. I mean, I mean, I mean, signs and wonders are happening. And we think about the signs and wonders that Jesus did. And we think, could that be? And so now we come to chapter 3. And out of all the signs and wonders that took place... Luke just tells us about this one. Now, why he just tells us about this one, he doesn't say. He just lays it out for us. He just tells us about this one. Not, it might be because this one's a rather transitional one. Because things begin to change after this one. We'll get into chapter 4 and we'll realize, amazingly, that not everybody was pleased that a man uh, who was lame walked. Not everybody was pleased with that because of of how it was done, and more importantly, in whose name it was done. And so, so we find a change happening, persecution and so forth, that will be a continuing theme throughout the book of, Luke, book of Acts from Luke. But, 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 but we have it here. And so you, you know this scene, I suppose, if you've grown up in church, if you're in Sunday school, or if you just listen to it as I read it, you know something about it, it catches your attention. Peter and John 
are going off to the temple to pray. Now that may sound like an oddity, given the fact that the temple was no longer needed in the same way that it had been needed. Uh, they would know that. Peter and John would know that. Peter and John, having been taught by Jesus after his resurrection, that that, that sacrifices wouldn't have needed to continue to be made, therefore you wouldn't need that in the temple, that, that Jesus was their high priest and they didn't need priests in the temple and all of that. Um, but still, it was their culture. It was a great gathering place to pray. They were in habit of praying at the ninth hour, at three o'clock in the afternoon. That would be the time when the last sacrifice would actually be given in the, for the day in the, in the temple and so forth. And, and, and so they would gather with other believers, no doubt, in the temple to pray. And, and so here they go. Uh, and on their way, they see this man. The suspicion is he was rather well known among them. Maybe they had seen him before. Maybe he had seen them before. Maybe he knew about Peter and John. They were getting famous by that time, uh, especially around the temple area. Jesus had been around that same temple area before. In fact, just a couple of months before. Uh, it would be hard not to hear of Jesus if you hung out at the temple, especially on that day when Jesus was crucified and the veil separating the holy place from the most holy place was cut in two. That, that would cause a disturbance in the temple. You would think the word would get out, that somebody is you know, out there mending pretty quickly to put this thing back up. Uh, and so uh, you'd think you'd know about that. You wonder... Why Jesus had kneeled him. But we don't know any of that. It just doesn't say any of that. We, we really don't know anything about this man, except that he was lame. And later on in chapter 4, we learned that he was 40 years old, and he had been lame from birth. He had never walked. Something was wrong with his feet. Something was wrong with his ankles. Something was wrong with his legs. We don't know exactly what, although it seemed to be feet and ankles, because that seems to be what Luke, the physician, tells us were strengthened so that he could walk. Um, but there he was. Uh, a rather sad thing for Israel, there was one who was poor among them. There wasn't any to, that was to be poor among them, but here was one who was poor among them. And many, probably, who were also begging in that particular place. It was a great place to beg. I mean, it was probably one of the premier places, because it's a great place to be uh, out in front of a temple wherein the people who enter it have been taught that if they help the poor, God will be pleased and bless them. And so, again, good strategy, good place. His friends would bring him there day after day in order to beg. Sadly, he was poor among them and had to gain that way. And sadly, he missed the prayers. Nobody seemed to invite him in to come and pray. They just left him out there, it appears, to beg. The most important thing in his mind appears to be not praying. He didn't say to his friends, it appears, uh, take me into the temple so I can pray at three. Uh, he would rather be outside begging because he needed that material sustenance. There he was. Peter and John walk up. The man speaks to them. And amazingly, Peter and John, and Peter seems to be more emphasized here, put their gaze on this man. I think the NIV said looked at him, but, but, but really it's, it's they, they had a, a gaze. I mean, their eyes met. And it was more significant than you can imagine. And I guess as a beggar, and I don't know this to be true, I'm simply speculating as well, most of us, at least in our culture, have been taught to look away from beggars. The last thing we want to do is make eye contact with them because then we probably feel like we have to give them something. And so we just kind of look away, we turn away. So you get this sense, 
that when they gazed at this man and he asked them for money, that he and they looked back so seriously that he may have been thinking, wow, I'm going to get the biggest check I've ever gotten. I mean, nobody's ever looked at me like this uh, before. So you just get this picture, you get this scene. And then the words out of Peter, I don't have any money. Now, I don't know if the guy's heart sunk at that moment in time. Uh, you would suspect that if he's reacting and responding, that it would have. Uh, but he says, I'll give you what I do have. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? Why did Peter and John focus on this man? Now, we're not told that there were other beggars there, but it was a common place to beg and a common thing to do. And, and, and you wonder, why this one? We don't know. But you get a sense that Peter and John knew they were called on that day, that moment, however that worked inside of them, to know that. To know this was the guy, this was the one. So they gazed at him. Peter said, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I have. And then he didn't pray for the man. He did not pray for this man's healing. He commanded him to be healed. In the name of Jesus. You get a sense that Peter thought he somehow had been given power of eternity on the name of Jesus. That that he could use the name of Jesus in a sense however he wished. Wishing, of course, that he would be doing that which Jesus would do if he were here. I mean, that's that sense of a power of eternity. I can can use your name because I I can do for you what you would do if you were here. And you've appointed me to do just that. And so there's a sense in which he doesn't pray for the man. He commands him. So if the man didn't get up, he would have disobeyed God by continuing to be lame. And so Peter, being Peter, I suppose, made the command and then reached down, pulled the guy up. And Luke says at that moment in time, his feet and his ankles were made strong. And he not only walked, but he jumped. Now, that would be amazing for anybody who had good legs, who hadn't used them for 40 years. I mean, could you imagine uh, losing, using your legs for 40 years and somebody pulls you up? <laughs> they wouldn't work well. But all of that came to, came to be at that moment in time. This wasn't a gradual healing. This wasn't where he confessed his healing. This isn't something where any of that took place. This was an instantaneous Jesus healing. I mean, boom, just like Jesus used to do. And there he was, um, up on his feet and up and around, leaping and walking Praising God. He knew what had happened. That God had healed him. God had intervened in some way because how else could this be? He was completely lame and he had no other help and no other hope. But now God had miraculously, um, miraculously healed him. So he clung on to Peter and John. Verse 11 says, not, not because he couldn't walk, but think about it. I mean, what's he going to do? If somebody had just done that to you, would you let him go? I mean, wow. So here he is. He's clinging onto them, basically saying, I'm yours, man. Wherever you want to go, I'm going with you because I'm walking and you're walking and this is wonderful. So they go into Solomon's this portico, this colonnade. Jesus had been there many times. Very common place to go. And so they went into the temple area. And here they were with this man. Now the question for us is, how do we understand this? Now if we left it there... Uh, my temptation would be to think that the teaching is, that the point is, that you and I as believers in Christ should run out and find everybody that we can put our gaze upon who has a need and we should command them in the name of Jesus to get over it. 
every sick person, every lame person, every deaf person, every blind person. Uh, in the name of Jesus, see. In the name of Jesus, walk. In the name of Jesus, heal. Hear. In the name of Jesus, you know, get up off your sickbed. But, but Luke doesn't go there at all. He doesn't hardly even mention the man after this. And it isn't that the man was incidental. This was a great blessing to this man. This was something consistent with who Jesus is and the very compassion that he would give. But, but Luke's purpose, Luke's purpose is to set this book out, you remember, for this man Theophilus so that he could share with Theophilus all that Jesus was continuing to do and to teach. And so this is really about Jesus, just like everything else in the book of Acts. It's about Jesus. And it's about people, disciples of Jesus, apostles in this particular case, being witnesses of the fact that Jesus is risen. And so the very point here is that Jesus is alive. Can't you see? Jesus is alive, this very Jesus whom you've crucified. And of course, the, 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 the clue here for us is that this is one of those wonders and signs. And a wonder is something that takes place that makes us wonder. It just causes us to stop. It sucks the air right out of us. And we think, how could that be? And we have moments like that in our life. You go to the Grand Canyon and kind of, wow, look at this. I suppose it happens with a mom when she walks into her teenage son's room and the bed's made. <laughs> wow. Sorry. Um, but, but things like that happen to us, take our breath away. But nothing, let's face it, nothing like this. Who has ever seen this? And it's a sign. As I mentioned, as Jeff was being baptized or before, that baptism is a sign. And when there's a sign, you don't stop and look at the sign and, and live at the sign. You know, if you're hungry... And you're driving down the road and you see a big billboard for McDonald's. You don't stop and gaze up at those, the billboard and say, wow, those fries are huge. Right? You go to where it's pointing. You're, you're, the question you're asking is, where's the McDonald's? Where, where do I go? And you look for the address. How many exits? How many miles? How many whatever turns? And you go there. And when you arrive there, you don't stop at the sign outside that says McDonald's. And stare at it and go, oh, finally, I'm satisfied. No, the sign itself doesn't satisfy. Signs never do. Signs are not their own destination. They're pointing to something else. And Peter knows that. And he's saying, don't miss this. You all are looking at the wrong thing. First and foremost, he says, you're looking at me and John. You think it's our power or piety that made this happen. <laughs> Trust me. It isn't. It wasn't. This isn't what made this happen. It was Jesus. And it begins with them. And, and again, you have to understand, he has a very select audience here. He has a group of people who are going to the temple at the, at the, at, at the ninth hour, which for us is three in the afternoon. It's the, sort of the last temple goings on for the day. And so these would be the religious people. These would be many of the relig religious leaders. It may be that the high priest is there on this particular day. I mean, this was an important time to go. This was, this was a time when religious Israelites went to the temple. And so 
given that he had that select group, he, he knew how to address them. He knew how to appeal to them. And so he begins by saying, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. The God of our fathers, he's the very one who's glorified Jesus, his servant. Now, that's a technical expression, his servant. Because the servants of the Lord, for anybody who was in the temple that way, that day, would be known to be the Messiah. The reason that we read for affirmation of faith from Isaiah 53 is if you go back to Isaiah 52, verse 13, it begins... Because that is one from the prophet Isaiah, what we call the servant songs of Isaiah. Speaking of the servant of the Lord. And he says he's this, this, he glorified his servant. That is, he received his servant. He honored his servant. He, he received him into glory and exalted him. His servant, Jesus. But then he goes on to say, but you, however, you delivered him up to Pilate. That is, you delivered him over to death. You denied him. I mean, Pilate had enough sense. Pilate had enough sense to say, let's release this man. And you said, no, we'd rather have a murderer. We'd rather have Barabbas. In fact, he says, you denied the holy and righteous one. That is the Messiah. The one who is holy unto God, the one who is righteous, is always right in his relationship, in his presence with God. You denied him, in fact. You killed the author of life, which is a little bit of an oxymoron, if you think about it. You killed the author of life. But God, this very God, who glorified his servant, Jesus, raised him from the dead. In other words, you have been the enemy of God. You have been the exact opposite of God concerning this Jesus. And he says, but it's this Jesus who did this. So finally, by verse 16, Peter says, and his name. And when he says his name, he means more than just J-E-S-U-S, right? He means the very person of Jesus, the very character of Jesus, this one Jesus. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This is by faith in his name. Now it's interesting that Peter would say that because we have to ask the question, whose faith? Now clearly Peter had faith. I mean, clearly Peter was believing, Peter was trusting that when he said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk, he was convinced that Jesus would heal him because he leaned over and picked him up and said, get on with it. Um, Peter's faith certainly was active. But you also get a sense that in the midst of the pronouncement of that word, that even this man himself was gaining faith, was believing. Because notice how Peter puts it. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man, this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus. He doesn't even say, this faith that is in Jesus. He says, this faith that is through Jesus, that, is, that comes even from him. So you get the sense that everything is from Jesus. 
I mean, not, not just the healing, that's sort of the end result of it, but, 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 there, but even the faith came through Jesus in order to believe that he was going to be healed. And he's saying, listen, don't, don't look at us at all. Don't look at this man at all. Everything that was, worth, that was necessary for this miraculous thing to happen came from Jesus. So look at him. It's almost as if he's saying, who could believe that this could happen? Who among us could believe that this kind of thing, who could have this kind of faith? Even that faith would have to come through Jesus. I mean, I think if you'd go to Peter and say, Peter, how'd you know to do that? <laughs> He'd go, Jesus gave me faith. And you say, well, on another day, say, you know, we pass by beggars all the time. We pass by lame people all the time. We pass by blind people all the time. But this time, even the faith to... So, so don't, Peter would say, I think, don't pat me on the back and say, what faith you had. Peter would say, came from Jesus, it was through him. Or this man, if you say, wow, how did you have the faith to believe that though you never walked, you could walk just because this guy shows up and says, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. I just did. Where did it come from? Jesus. Who was your faith in? Jesus. Who did this? Must you ask? It was Jesus. And so you see the testimony, the witness at this point in time to all these people was that Jesus really is alive. Now, I think you and I would think that if we had the power to heal like that, we'd have all we needed. I mean, that, that would really be the bottom line. Wow, we could heal anybody. We could speak in the name of Jesus, and boom, everybody would be healed. But that wouldn't be all we needed. Because see, there's something more significant than that. What we really need is to be forgiven our sins. And Peter would know that. For instance, in First Peter in chapter 2, verse 21, uh, Peter writes this. He says, For to you, I'm sorry, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24. He himself, that is Jesus himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. How does Peter understand that expression by his wounds, you've been healed. Now, in an ultimate sense, we can say, by the wounds of Jesus, by the suffering of Jesus, every ill, every malady, every problem will be gone. But Peter says it goes deeper than that. It isn't just about enabling us to walk if we can't. It isn't just enabling us to hear when we can't. It isn't just enabling us to see when we can't. It isn't just enabling us to feel better when we're sick. It isn't just causing the cancer to go away. There's something deeper 
that we need to understand that Christ has done. And that's what we begin. That's what we grab a hold of. That's what is life to us now. And he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter saying, what's important in all of this isn't just this man is walking. Because you see, just because that man was walking and leaping on that day didn't mean that when he was 83 he wouldn't get arthritis in his ankles. It didn't mean that he wouldn't break his leg playing in the GBL, you know, the basketball league at his church. It just, it meant that he could walk then. But now he would live a normal kind of life. Lazarus eventually died again. Right? So there's something deeper. There's something that we need to look to. Something we need to be really happy about. Something that should fill us with joy. Whether we can walk or whether we can see or whether we can hear. Whether we have cancer or whether life is good or whether life is hard. or Whatever life is. And that is that Jesus has come and taken care of that most basic, significant need in us. Forgiving our sins. Now the rest of this chapter, we'll get into that, but that's next week. But a question for us at this point as we think this through. What in our lives... What in our community gives evidence that Jesus is alive? On this day, what gave evidence that Jesus was alive was that in the name of Jesus, Peter can command a man who is lame to walk and Jesus would be glorified. Jesus did it. What in our lives, what in our community gives evidence that Jesus is alive? That he rules and reigns. That his kingdom has been inaugurated. And that one day will come in its fullness. I suspect we can make a list. I hope we can make a list. Like we have his word. That's evidence. As we give his word. As it produces fruit. We see that Jesus is alive. We need to pray. That God will empower that word in our midst. So that. When we share the gospel, when we declare the gospel, it really is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. You see, the world needs more than information. It isn't just an informational thing. Um, you can tell people, these people had heard about Jesus before. Some had even seen Jesus risen and didn't believe. It isn't just simply a matter of information. It wasn't just simply a matter of information to this man who was lame. There's power that is in the word of God. And we must pray and trust that the power of God is, in fact, in the gospel so that when we share it, so that when we declare it, that we'll be able to see that Jesus is alive and saves. I suspect in the midst of our fellowship, we must be a fellowship of people that shows that Jesus is among us. Thus, the very character of Christ must be here. We must have his compassion. We must have his gentleness we must have his patience we must have his humility we must be forgiving 
as he has forgiven us. We must be merciful as he's shown his mercy to us. We must be gracious as he is gracious. We're not called the body of Christ for nothing. We're called the body of Christ because people are to see evidenced in us. Jesus. And then, of course, that very love and compassion that we're sharing amongst each other needs to be shared outside as well. This man who was begging wasn't part of that initial first Christian community. He wasn't part of the ones who were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and the fellowship and the prayer. He wasn't part of that nice little wonderful knit group. And what happened? That wonderful knit group who were loving each other as they were supposed to and all of that stuff that came first, can't do it without it. But that was taken outside in almost a natural way. You know, quite frankly, if you come from a loving family, mom, dad, and the kids, and you go to work, it's really likely that you're going to be a loving person at work. Well, if you live in a loving, fellowshipping community, surprise, surprise, when you meet people who aren't part of that, what will you be to them? Be patient, be kind, be gentle, be merciful. This is where we learn it, and then we extend it. Why? So people can know that Jesus is alive. People should be able to look at our community and what we do when we're together and when we're apart and when we're out there and all of that and say, wow, Jesus is alive. Look at that person. Look at what they're doing. That's like Jesus would do. And I have to be honest with you. I would love to be able to walk up to people and say, in the name of Jesus, doesn't work for me. But in the name of Jesus, what I have here, I can extend to you forgiveness in the name of Christ. I can extend to you kindness in the name of Christ. I can extend to you that which if Christ weren't alive, I wouldn't be extending to you right now because I'd be home watching a ball game. I'd be on the golf course. I'd be doing something consumptive for myself. But no, I'll give this. I'll even sacrifice this on your behalf with the hope that you'll turn around and say, Jesus is alive. And we should be filled with joy. I suspect that this guy didn't walk around leaping his whole life. I bet he did for a couple of months. I bet he got obnoxious. I bet he'd be sitting at home at the table and all of a sudden jump up and people go, sit down. He go, I just can't. I just can't. I've never done this before. This is amazing. I suspect after a while I got used to walking. It came sort of natural to him and he got used to it and might have even forgotten that day psalm. What a sad thing. And we must be people filled with joy. If not, we don't give evidence that Jesus is alive. We don't give evidence that there's forgiveness of sins in his name. We don't give evidence that there's eternal life in him. And of course, as a body of people, we give evidence of the presence of Jesus in this meal that he has he's given to us. He said that as you eat and drink, you declare his death until he comes. That little expression, until he comes, is so important. Because it means, though he died, if he's going to return, he must now be alive. 
If he simply died and that was it, he couldn't come back. But we declare his death till he comes, declaring that he died but rose, ascended, exalted, rules and reigns will return. We declare it here at this table the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After giving thanks again, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of this bread, drink of this cup, you you proclaim, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We say, Yes, he lived. Yes, he died. Yes, he rose. Yes, he was exalted. Yes, he rules and reigns. Yes, he's among us now. This is his body. This is his blood. This doesn't mean that this changes in any way or that this is where we find and touch Jesus. But he's saying, I want you to know when you're around this table, I want you to to realize I'm here. You can't see me, but I'm here. And I gave you this so you can taste it and you can touch it and you can feel it and smell it and all that. And to know that I'm as real here as this bread and juice is here. And I'm always that real among you. I am alive. And he says, I want you to live that out forgiven. I want you to live that out filled with my spirit. I want you to live that out in such a way that people will see it and say, Jesus lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us. You would grant to us opportunities to declare that Jesus is alive. May we not miss the gaze of any person to whom you will give faith. And may we believe as we gaze upon them we can declare the truth of Jesus so we can live the truth of Jesus so we can show the truth of Jesus in some way they would see it and believe Father we await a day when there are no cripples among us we await a day there are no blind among us we wait a day when everyone hears and Father there's no poverty among us there's no injustice among us There's no cruelty among us. There's no sickness among us. No sadness among us. Father, till that day, we pray that we could extend the very presence of Jesus to others. Father, I pray you take this bread, take this juice, and use it in such a way, set it apart, that would enable us to really know that Jesus is alive and always present with us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table isn't the table of grace. Evangelical Presbyterian Church It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. I think of myself often like that lame man. I, I see that's how we were born, unable, <laughs> hopeless, helpless, 
The world couldn't help it. Best it could give us some sort of momentary pleasures, a little money, a little this, a little that, but it couldn't solve the real problem that had to come from without, that had to come from Jesus. And so all those who really identify with this lame man at that point go, yeah, I know that's how I was born. And the only reason I can walk, the only reason I have joy, the only reason I live is because Jesus has made me alive. You understand yourself to be a sinner, spiritually lame, a sinner without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And you believe and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. And you desire to live a life that shows that he's alive. That's true for you. Please come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And as you do, think, Jesus is alive. And then let me ask you this in your own mind to pray. Help me be a witness of that fact. Please come. Receive this as God's benediction after which we'll sing together the doxology. Now look to him and to him alone who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore together. Let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, Son, 